Space Shuttle, this is Flight Safety. This podcast may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle while in motion. You are clear for launch. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction story titled Caracio by today's guest fanfiction writer, Serena E.W. The first time he had seen a kingfisher, the kingfisher with this specific markings on its chest, as Harry knew now, was during the lonely, miserable days just after he had come back from his first trip to Diagon Alley with Hagrid. Edwig had been the only proof nearby that the magical world had not been a dream, not a product of his freakish fantasies, as he had been so often told. The smaller bird had come in through the window one day and sat down cautiously on the other side of the windowsill, the owl at first eyeing him, for something told Harry it was a male bird, with distrust. He had left the same day, as suddenly as he had come. Harry remembered his first Christmas at Hogwarts, thinking Hedwig, who must have delivered his presents, deserved a treat and a gift too. The other bird had shot in from the owlery's open platform and settled next to her, the snowy owl no longer eyeing the colorful bird suspiciously. Soul, he had named the bird, after the sun he had seen rising at that moment from behind the owlery, its upper side the glittery blue of the awakening sky, its underside the fiery orange of the rising sun. He had not known then that all kingfishers look like this. He had only thought that this was the right name for this bird. Perhaps it had been Harry's imagination, but the bird had glared and ruffled his feathers indignantly in response. And yet, he had answered to the name ever since. Ever since, Soul would be around whenever Harry had found himself injured, often at night or in the early mornings, and on the days when he felt most lonely at Privet Drive. After Voldemort's wraith had passed through him in his first year, he thought he had dreamed of a high-pitched whistle when he had been unconscious. When Dobby had taken the letters and Vernon had padlocked Hedwig to her cage, Soul had felt like his only link to the outside world. At the end of Harry's second year, the smaller bird had perched himself next to Hedwig when he went to gather her for his trip home, turning round dark eyes on the new scar on his wrist. That summer, the bird had fluttered in just soon enough to keep Harry's boiling magic from exploding for another day, before it did, and blew up March. The weekend he had spent in the infirmary with the remains of his shredded broom, only the bird's piercing two-note whistles had kept the nightmares of his screaming mother at bay. The year after, a trembling soul had been his only anchor in the nights, filled with high-pitched, cold, cruel voices in the death of graveyards that spoke of rebirth, yet killed. In the nights filled with the memory of pain, his arm and his scar throbbing and bleeding, in the days when the very air in his prison of a room felt cold and cruel in the foggy remembrance of screams that were not only his. He remembered checking up on Hedwig that year, after her interception and injury, the turquoise and orange bird had come uncharacteristically close then, hovering in the air for a moment to pick at the bandages on his hand that hid the words, I must not tell lies. The snowy white owl next to him looked as if she, too, wanted to tear off the cloth, hiding the results of Umbridge's torture. He had clearly seen the markings on Soul's chest then, and it was the same one as this kingfisher. At the end of the year, before he had been discharged from the hospital wing, the shrill call had jerked him away from whispers of the veil mingled with the voice of prophecy, like shards of glass orbs rasping against each other. Soul had fluttered into his room at Privet Drive again, only a few days later, 
by turns shaking when perched on the windowsill and flying agitated zigzags through the room, before leaving, just as suddenly, in a dizzying blur the color of the rising sun. On one restless night, during Harry's sixth year, the bird had come pecking at the dorm windows, begging for entry, and promptly settled, once again trembling, on Harry's still outstretched arm with the choked-sounding whistle. Astonished, Harry led him. This was the first time that Soul had sought contact from him. Cautiously, he had moved his other hand towards the bird, letting head and beak rest against his fingers, both of them trembling at the hesitant touch. Soul had fallen asleep with his claws dug firmly into Harry's shirt, but by the next morning he had flown away again, open window and little holes in Harry's shirt sleeve, the only evidence that the bird had been there. One year later, Harry realized now it had been this bird's shrill call that had led him to trust the Patronus in the Forest of Dean. He remembered. All these memories flashed before Harry's eyes at that very moment, and he couldn't keep an astonished, oh, from overwhelming his silence. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world. Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction writer today is Serena E.W. She's been a member of AO3 since 2021 and has 20 fanfiction works posted. She loves fluff and angst tropes. Me too. Hell yeah. And enjoys exploring metaphors, symbolism, and mythology in her writing, which is super awesome. Serena E.W. also plays the flute, so she loves incorporating classical music and musical theory references into her stories. She also loves losing herself in the finer details of spellcrafting and magic science, which allows her to draw on her real-life experiences as a med student. Serena E.W., welcome to FFM. How you doing today? Hi! I think I'm doing fine. My sore throat's gone, so mostly gone at least, so yeah. Thank you for asking. How are you? Absolutely. No, I am so good. I'm so glad that you are here. We're going to have a super fun time today. Of course, talking about fan fiction, because that's like my favorite thing to talk about. So, of course, we're going to have a good time, right? So, tell me about your history with fan fiction. I was very interested to learn that you've only been reading it for about two and a half years now. Super, super awesome, though. Like, tell me how you first discovered fan fiction. I discovered it during COVID, like I was stuck at home and I was having a real hard time and yeah, I was browsing the internet and I stumbled upon fanfix.net and I somehow like slipped into Harry Potter AU stories and yeah, I quickly got my taste for Separatus. I think my first Separatus fic was actually, it's called To Shape and Change and I think since then I've been stuck in the Snape and Harry corner and I was initially really reluctant to move um, to AO3 for some reason. I can't remember. But once I did, well, yeah, that was it. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm gone. See you later, FFN. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, kind of. Well, the formatting is certainly easier to read on AO3. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. And it's got like author's note. 
its sections. I, I think that's one of the things I like about AO3 because, yeah, FFN sometimes has like fix with chapters that are just author's notes. I was like, um, okay. And I don't see that as often on AO3. So, although to be honest, I have been writing fan fiction since technically since 2017 because that was one of my school assignments. And then, like, during COVID, like, before I started really reading fan fiction, I've, I wrote, an, like, I think 9,000 words, really cringy, self-insert Doctor Who fan fiction. So, yeah, I think the history is longer than me actually reading it, because I was really reluctant to read fan fiction with Doctor Who, but yeah, I slipped into it. So, here we are. Oh, okay. I have follow-up questions for you. I have questions about all this, okay? Yes. When you wrote your first piece of fan fiction in 2017, you said that was part of a school assignment. Was the actual assignment to write fan fiction, or is that what you chose to do with the assignment? I can't remember. I just have, you know, not a screenshot, but a photo of this, because I think we had to send it in digitally, and I wrote it out by hand and made a photo of it. And I found it on my computer, like, a few months ago. I was like, okay. I wrote fanfiction in 2017. Good to know. Oh, man. Yeah. And I was just wondering, you know, I'm so curious to know if that was the actual assignment, just because if it was, you know, that teacher was old like me and probably grew up reading fanfiction in their teen years or whatever. and was like, oh, this would make such a great assignment. So when I see fanfiction sort of like trickle into school assignment territory, it just gladdens my heart because I know that these are teachers that were raised on fan fiction. You know, it is just such a funny thing. So I was just wondering about that. But going back to discovering it on FFN, do you remember what you were searching? Like, I'm just so curious to know what you were looking for online to stumble accidentally on fan fiction on FFN. I think I can't exactly remember, but I spent time on the HP Wiki for about, I don't know, for half a year, I think. And then somehow I just ended up on FFN and then I was hooked. What were your initial thoughts when you first, like, you read your very first piece of fan fiction and you figure out, oh my God, this whole site is just full of fics that people are writing about fictional characters. What did you think about that? That's a really good question because I can, like, gobble up stuff. Yeah, I could gobble up stuff at super quick paces so I don't think much. I just read and then once I read, I'm hooked. And if there's more of that, I get more into it. And so I didn't know what I was thinking when I, after I read my first fanfic, apart from I want more of it. I want more of it. <laughs> I love that, though. I love that because you know what? I feel like that is such a genuine, honest reaction, right, to fan fiction. I know that when I first discovered fan fiction, I felt like my mind was blown a little bit just because it had never occurred to me that that was something that you could do. So when I read my first piece of fan fiction, I was like, oh, my God, what a concept. But my thoughts on fan fiction didn't really evolve past that until much, much later. In the beginning, my relationship with fan fiction was more emotional, you know? I just knew that I loved it. I knew that it was enjoyable. It brought me so much happiness. I couldn't get enough of it. So, like, it was a very emotional thing for me. At first, it took a really long time for me to start thinking about fan fiction intellectually. So I feel like that's probably the reaction that a lot of us have when we start out with fan fiction. It's like an emotional experience. Um, so you've been reading about two and a half years. I'm wondering, 
what are some of the most surprising things that you've learned about fan fiction so far? And what do you love most about fan fiction in general? So I think what I love most about fan fiction, I don't know, I think this is the, yeah, this is the easier question for me to answer because there's such an active and hardworking and talented community out there. Like all those people behind these amazing stories, like, oh my God, my mind is blown away every time I see like people on Discord chatting about random topics that come up in their writing. I was like, oh my God, how do people know all this stuff? These are just people from like all runs of life. And it's amazing how like, I don't think equal is quite the right word, but yeah, how people from different backgrounds communicate with each other. And those people all pour their souls into writing and creating amazing content for the world. And when I joined the Discord server, I was so blown away by that. Like, oh my God. I still am regularly, very, like, very regularly. I love that. The point about the people behind the writing or behind the creation of all of these fan works, and especially your point about them being from all walks of life, right? Yeah. These are all kinds of different people who do different things and live in different parts of the world, but we're all drawn together by one common language, the language of fandom, the language of fan fiction and writing and creating and loving these things that we love so much. And how beautiful is that, that we have those things to draw us together, even when we all do come from different walks of life. I think that's beautiful too. Yeah. And I'm regularly amazed at how much my mental boundaries are getting pushed like every day just because I'm reading along with Discord chats on like fanfic writers servers. Like, oh my god. Also, second thing, what I love about fan works too is that it's a relative well, I haven't had many bad experiences so far, so which is what I'm really happy about. So I think as of now, it really allows me to try out new or relatively new things. Like, yeah, writing. I haven't done much creative writing before. Songwriting, art, in a way, at least. It's amazing. That is so, so cool. I haven't been in very many Discord communities. The Discord thing kind of, you know, we didn't have that when I was younger. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of a, a newer thing. But many of them are wonderful places to be with wonderful people. It sounds like these types of Discord communities can help expose you to a lot of different things that you wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, so what about some of the most surprising things that you've learned about fanfiction so far? Phew, that is another hard question. Or like one of the hardest questions from the thing you sent me. So, so I think it's the same thing, actually. Like, how many people are behind this and how amazing the communities are and yeah you know what i think that that is exactly it it works for both questions right i did not realize when i was a lot younger and new in the fan fiction world i did not know that a lot of these people that are writing these stories are amazing people doing amazing things in their real lives it never occurred to me that the writers of these fan fictions could be lawyers or doctors, or computer programmers, or scientists, or, you know, like all of these amazing things. Yes. It just never occurred to me before. And then as I got older, you know, and I started having my own career and started doing things, you know, out in the real world, 
at some point, it finally occurred to me, like, oh my god, not only are they writing these amazing stories, but look at who they are, you know, just in their everyday lives. This is amazing. Yep. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it amazes me every day. Right, 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 and it's just a beautiful thing to get to know people. I think in the fandom communities on a deeper level than just surface, because then you do get to. You know, hear these stories about the experiences that they've had and what they do, and I'm just amazed by everybody's story. So that's why I have a podcast all about it because I just love people's <laughs> stories. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting to know people you wouldn't get to know otherwise. It's ah, it's amazing. Yeah, that's why fandom is so cool, and being involved in fandom communities, especially, I think, is just so cool because yeah, you just don't know who you're going to meet. You know, yeah, and it's amazing. So. Now, speaking of like real life stuff, you know, in one of your emails to me, you mentioned using real life experiences and studies with fan fiction writing for you personally. Tell us more about that. How have you used your real life experiences with your own writing projects? It began with my very first fanfic I was planning to publish, Without Flowers, because there's a little bit of story behind that. As you said, I played a flute. I used to very intensely and I don't know whether you um, listened to the song I sent to you. I did. I love Schubert. He's one of my favorites. So I listened to the entire thing. If it's Schubert, you have to listen to it. I'm sorry. Those are the rules. I don't make up the rules. Yes. yes, It's Schubert. Yes. 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 So I played this in like 2019, I think. I actually performed this. I, I think I still have the video of it. Either way, I was in love with this. Like this is... Oh, this is so amazing to play and the phrases are just gorgeous and it's it's fun to play too and there is so much emotion behind this and so this is um introduction theme and variation on Trockne Blumen, so with it flowers, a song by him from a song cycle. And when I listened to the song, yeah, I got to know the song because I do some singing too, and it's like, oh my god. This fits so well in Harry Potter book seven. No one else would think of that. But oh my God, it fits so perfectly. Like, oh my God. So yeah, which is why I had to write it and I wanted to publish it. And this is how I started writing fanfic. I love that so much because I feel like it goes back to your point of getting to know people in fan fiction communities and just how blown away we are sometimes by the perspectives that people bring into their stories because of what they know and what they do. So you have that musical expertise. You've done music for a long time. So when you look at a story, you're seeing it through that musical lens and you're able to take that and put it into your writing projects. And others couldn't do that who don't have that same perspective and experience that you do. But you can. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. Certainly. I was like, oh, my God. There are a few things which involve classical music in my writing for some reason. I don't know. It ends up in my writing rather frequently. I was like, okay. Because you said you're a Schubert fan too, I was like, there is the Fate Weaver, and chapter two is technically a crossover with the Layaman. I don't know, you must know the song. Yes. Mm-hmm. The Hurdy Gurdy Man, the last song from Winterreise, Winter's Journey. I think you must know it. Right. Yeah. It's technically a crossover with the song. <laughs> 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 because I wanted Harry to be deaf, and I needed a model for death. So that. Hedigani Man became the model for death. <laughs> That's so creative, though. I love that. I absolutely love that. You know, I was going to tell you, 
I enjoyed reading your fan fictions immensely. Like they're so well written and beautiful. And when I got started reading your first one, I was about four paragraphs in when I realized the cadence of your writing has a musical quality to it. I can't really explain that. It's just that when I was hearing the words in my mind as I was reading it, I thought to myself, this sounds so musical. You have this like musical sound. I don't know how else to say that. So I have this like really wacky like throwaway question for you. Uh-huh. Yes. Because your writing <laughs> sounds musical to me. If you had to describe your style of writing as a musical style, what would it be? Because I was thinking about this yesterday, okay? While I was at work, I was thinking about this and I thought, well, if I had to answer this question, I would say it's a toss-up between classical and romantic musical styles. But I couldn't choose one because they both felt right to me. And I was just wondering if you had to choose for your writing, what would you say? I think I was still stuck in my romanticism phase. Ah, yes. Okay. (laughs) I haven't got it out of my system yet. Yes. 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 Well, you know, when I was going through my own musical training, most of the songs that I enjoyed playing the most were also from the romantic period. So I totally get what you're saying there. What do you play? I was trained in piano, so I started lessons at like seven, and I ended when I was about 16. So I don't know, what is that, 11 years? It's been a really long time. I can't play half as well as I used to, but... Same. Yeah, yeah, but uh, oh, I remember playing a lot of things, and it was so much fun, so... Yes. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, oh my God. Uh, That's so funny. I'm so glad that we said the same one then, romantic, because yeah, I was like, it's either romantic or classical for her writing style, because like, there's just this musical cadence to it. I can't explain it, but I think other people who have read your stories probably know what I mean without me explaining it. So thank you. I'm blushing hard right now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, and you should, because they are just beautiful. I loved the way that you put words together. It's gorgeous. Thanks. (laughs) We are talking about Harry Potter today, especially, you know, obviously we're talking about uh, um, the characters of Harry Potter and Severus Snape specifically. Everybody knows I'm a huge Snary fan. You do have some hints of Snary with lots of your stories and things like that. And you also have some Severitis in there. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about the Harry Potter and Severus Snape characters? Lay it on us. So, first of all, I'm just giving my own very, very limited view of that. I just wanted to say it because, yeah. Oh, for Harry Potter. Well, the first thing I wrote down in my notes is, God, when I wrote him in Christmas in Limbo, I realized what an immature adult he can be as late as when he is 17. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Yeah, that was the first thing I I wrote down because, like, yeah. So... On the House of Snary server, Discord server, Scarlet was streaming the Harry Potter audiobooks, and I found myself wondering, actually, about the flashes of insights Harry has at times. Like, sometimes the the comparisons or the flashes of those insights are brilliant. Like, from book one, there is a comparison with a horse somewhere in there. I don't, I can't even exactly remember what exactly it is, but it's stuck in my mind because that comparison isn't something many people would ordinarily think of and it makes so much sense you know so yeah like those insights can be right or can be wrong 
I mean, yeah, he's impulsive. He's like reckless. He tends to judge prematurely at times, but the intelligence is there. Absolutely, I've heard people say he seems to uh, navigate the world more intuitively. Yes, totally. I wrote to myself, he's a kind of driven by his first impression person. Ooh, yes, that's a good way to put it. I like that. Yeah. If you don't give indication that you don't like me, I trust you. But if you seem to hate me, I hate you back. And nothing can change it unless it's life-changing. Unless I die. (laughs) Unless I die. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah, so that's interesting. If you put it in those types of terms, then, in relation to his interactions with the Snevris Snape character, then, right? Because, I mean, he spends all of those books pretty convinced that Snape is out to get him. You know, I mean, that's his first impression of Snape and it kind of doesn't really change much through the books and stuff. So it is very interesting to me when I'm reading stories with these two characters, how the writers choose to navigate that issue. You know what I mean? What is the moment or what is the thing that would make Harry Potter change his mind about Severus Snape? But that's always an interesting question to me. I think it started with, in book five with Snape's worst memory. I wanted to say Harry has like a good heart in spite of everything, which makes him so lovable. And he's like a person who is capable of deep empathy. And that shows in that scene because first reaction, when he like sees the memories, like I think he says in the books, he's not horrified like that Snape found him watching the memories, but like, or horrified about punishment or something. He is appalled at his parents and Sirius's behaviours. So I think the change somewhat had to start there, or at least he is like capable of empathising with Snape. So the seeds of change. Yeah, yeah. Right there in that little bit where he sees something he wasn't supposed to see about his nemesis's background. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. I love it. Okay, keep going, keep going. So about Harry, I wanted to say he is, in spite of everything, he's like sassy. He asks questions like nobody's business, which is like, oh, okay. But also, I think after the war, I can't imagine him changing, struggling more with his perceptions, with himself, with things like survivor's guilt or something. I don't have a history with trauma, so I can only like speculate here from what I read in fanfics and from what I read from drama survivors like who have written fanfic. But I think after the war, I think he would become more similar to Severus Snape in that regard. Because, you know, survivor's guilt and a soldier without a purpose. You know what I mean? You know, I never thought about that point before. Soldier without a purpose. Ooh. That line is taken from a fanfic. I think it is... A fanfic's title, and B, there is another fan, at least one other fanfiction where that comes up, that expression. So this is not mine. I, I'm not taking credit for it, but I can't exactly remember where it's from. No, but it's a good point. It's a good point because that's something that Severus absolutely had to struggle with after the, you know, the first war and everything. And so there's Harry just coming into his adulthood with that same life experience, surviving a war and all of that. Yeah. Around the same time, like. In his development, actually, too. Yeah, yeah, around the same time. So isn't that interesting how history repeats itself there? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's really interesting how they are like a good combination of 
opposites and similarities. Also, I wanted to say about Survivor's Guild and stuff, I had to like take out my notes from a year ago because it was then that I started making notes about Severus for some reason. I can't even remember. I think that was when I started writing. I was like, okay, I want to write down some thoughts. And I started basing things off that. So my first thought when I wrote this down was Severus is actually a marked man. Not not so much because they're a dark mark, but he's more like marked by grief and guilt. So even without like the physical evidence, you know, yeah. Yes, yes. And it's so interesting to me, the way that he chooses to interact with other people. <laughs> you know, a lot of people love to point at that and be like, oh, he's just a bad man, you know. But isn't it easier to be angry all the time than to feel the grief and to feel the survivor's guilt all the time? You know yes. what I mean? Yes, exactly. Add to that that he is like split between so many worlds and self-images re-occlumency and that he like never quite fits in and you know add that to it and it's like total chaos unless he has like one single-minded coping strategy and in his case that's or at least what we see of him it's anger right and without something very important to focus his attention on you know what i mean that whole soldier without a purpose thing kind of comes in there because I feel like he's the type of person that would flounder a little bit if all he had to focus on was the drudgery of, I wake up every day, I teach my students, I grade my papers, I go home, I eat my spaghetti for dinner, and I go to sleep. You know, like, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very dull kind of life, you know? Existence, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I almost feel like he's the type of person that would flounder with that but then I forget what book is it, book five, maybe, when he has to become the spy again. And all of a sudden he has that singular purpose. And I don't know, he just seems like the type of person that would thrive under that singular purpose a little bit more than he would under the drudgery of nothing. Yeah. Now that you say it, it makes me sort of think that, I don't know, I wouldn't have said he likes it, but he like accepts it because he thinks, feels, knows. Neither of these words, but that without that purpose, I think he couldn't, perhaps he feels like he couldn't do without. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It could just, I don't know, give his life a little bit more meaning with that singular purpose than without it. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here, but... uh Yeah, same. Yeah, he's such a fascinating character. And you're right that between him and Harry... There are many similarities and so many differences, and it is just really interesting to see how the two of them navigate each other with those similarities and differences. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I think also in regards to Severus and Harry that um, love and hate aren't altogether two different sentiments, because I think what makes Severus so interesting is the duality between love and hate, light and darkness. So how that is central to him. Once you think about it, you tend to empathize with him more, I think. I don't know how to say that, but it's on a different scale. But to me, it sometimes feels like my everyday struggling or like not, you know, I wouldn't want to be so overdramatic. But yeah. Do you remember the moment that you started empathizing with Severus Snape? I actually have no idea. It has to be 
it's definitely was some time in the Severiter stories I read because when I first read Harry Potter, I was thirteen ish, and Prison of Azkaban stuck out in my mind, but I didn't like Snape then. So I think life experiences since then have changed me too. That makes perfect sense. I know a lot of people <laughs> that started, I don't know, empathizing <laughs> with Severus Snape a little bit more once they got older, because it feels to me like a lot of the things that make Severus tick are experiences that he had as an adult. I mean, I know obviously he has like a lot of past life experiences as a child that were formative to who he is. But a lot of the other stuff happened to him as an adult, you know? And so, I don't know. It just seems easier almost to empathize with him um, from an adult's perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, or maybe, if I may amend your statement, I think it's like, it is the experiences that make him an adult when, like, regardless of when they technically happen, like, at what age they technically happen. Yes, that's it. That's it. Thank you. That's perfect. Yes. They were very adult experiences that he went through, regardless of how old he actually was. Excellent. Was there anything else you wanted to say about Harry Potter or Severus Snape before we move on to your fan fiction? Yes, one thing about Severus. I think he wears a kind of self-assured mask that hides his insecurities. Depending on fanfic, for example, it does it well or less well, but I think as a character or as a person, he is actually a lot more vulnerable than your ordinary person. I feel like, at least. I don't know, because he's just so complex. I mean, if you don't have this internal perspective, it can be hard to, like, it is definitely hard to empathize with him. But, you know, I, I don't know how to say that, but it made more sense in my head. Tell me if this makes sense to you, because that was my experience. When I was reading the actual Harry Potter books for the first time, it was in, oh God, I'm trying to remember what year I started reading Harry Potter. It must have been like 2004 or five, maybe. I think it was 2005. And I remember that I was growing frustrated by the fact that we didn't get more of Snape's internal perspective on things, you know? I found him a very interesting character, but I don't, I didn't feel like I knew knew him very well just by reading the canon books but that's what fan fiction did for me that's what fan fiction did and that's what fan fiction did for a lot of us yes because all of a sudden you have all of these people imagining what that internal world looks like for severus snape and giving us all of these different you know opinions and views on it and it just blew me away because i had always suspected that severus snape at his core is very vulnerable. I just, I don't know why I got that impression from canon, but I did. And being able to explore that in the fan fiction, that really cemented my perpetual love for Severus Snape because I was just like, after getting to know him this deeply and this well and having all of those inner insecurities exposed out into the light, how could you not feel something? for this man, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Just my opinion, exactly. but whatever. You know? Exactly. Oh my God. Thank you for putting that into words. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I agree with you. Like that mask, you know, he has to wear it. He has to wear it because he's got that singular thing that he's focused on, you know, that thing he has to do. 
So he can't afford to let all of that insecurity out. He does have to keep it trapped behind that mask. But yeah, fan fiction takes the mask off. And that's just one of the most magical things about it. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Oh, so the mask certainly came off, I feel like, in the first fan fiction that I read from you. I read Coratio first. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Is that Coratio? Yeah, it's it's fine. I mean, I actually learned Latin on a German basis. So if I were to say like Coratio and like how I learned it, it would be Coratio. So I was like, huh? <laughs> okay. I think it also really depends on your your home language. It depends on it. Like what your Latin accent is. And my Latin accent is like German accented, totally German accented Latin. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you know, I never took Latin in any of my courses, so I am not the person to ask about how to pronounce this. But anyway, the story was beautiful. I loved the story so much. I got so absorbed in it. So I'm wondering, you know, first of all, tell us what the story is about for those out there who are curious and have not read it yet. And then I want to know what inspired this story for you. So the story is it starts just directly after the Battle of Hogwarts when Harry, like, goes out looking for survivors like after looking at Snape's memories he wants to you know find the man save the man or what I hinted in the fic was actually that when the freaking shack thing in canon actually happened that he cast some healing spells which I will explore a little more in the second part of the series but don't mind me so yeah he goes out to look for Snape and well he doesn't find him and he's like oh, what's going on? He's totally perplexed. And then afterwards, he yeah, he goes out from the Wampy Walla and sees this kingfisher there, which he suddenly remembers being familiar. Yeah, the story is like the story of how he takes this kingfisher in, like what the history is with this kingfisher. And yeah, how he nurses the bird back to health. And yeah. Oh, that's so cool. You used some myth and symbolism in this story. I was hoping that you could talk about that as far as like, you know, partially what helped inspire this for you. Yes, yes. Yeah, right. Inspiration. So you make it sound really deep, but actually this is like the first part of a three-part story. And it started off as the first prompt I wanted to claim for Oktoberfest because that's what it was written for is um, the Patronuses, like Snape and Harry's Patronuses, and how they reflect each other, each other's love, whatever. And so, okay, for some reason, I had to think of Kingfishers, because Kingfishers, like, it made me think of Alcyone and Sakes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Because my first thought was actually that to Severus, if his Patronus were, like, both the Patronuses were actually Kingfishers, it would symbolise to Severus that the person, aka Harry, who died and came back from death through the power of love. I guess that was what I was thinking. But then I changed around the idea because then the prequel ideas came in. So my mind was like, okay, I have to create a backstory on how these forms got to change from what we see in canon. So yeah, now I find myself liking to write... Severus fakes his death after the Battle of Hogwarts stories for some reason. I don't know why. So the Kingfisher, like in, in this myth, this myth, basically, I hope I'm not getting it like totally completely wrong, but this myth is like basically, okay, two people love each other. And then one of them goes out exploring 
looking for a prophecy, actually, because I found that connection really funny. And then he doesn't come back because he's killed on the way. And somehow the power of love or the gods or whatever, they manage to like give the two of them some sort of life back again. So that's what I was thinking about, actually. Oh, and I couldn't help but want this happy ending because I'm a notorious happy ending person. I know it doesn't seem like it recently, considering how much angst I'm writing, but yeah. Oh, and you certainly did give us the happy ending on this one. Oh my god, the last lines or the last couple of lines on this fig are especially beautiful. I mean, the whole thing is beautiful, but like... Thank you. That last line, it was like, oh my god, that's one of the most beautiful ending lines I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, I loved it so much. It ends on this gorgeous note, but I just, I loved this whole thing. I loved that it was sort of based on that legend of loss and reunification through the power of love. I loved how in the beginning, (laughs) when they find the Kingfisher, like the little injured bird, and Hagrid and Harry are talking about, you know, how to help this injured bird and stuff. And I loved how Hagrid just casually starts talking about all the nice things he remembers about Snape, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, Snape was kind of a bastard. And yeah, Snape did all this like evil shit, you know, but he repaired Hagrid's cabin. And he used to send Harry's friends to Hagrid for punishment because he knew Hagrid wasn't actually going to hurt them, you know, and he used to bring Hagrid the best quality potions because he actually did care about his students and the animals and wanted them to have the best, you know, and he talks about that time when um, Snape caught him doing something he shouldn't have been doing and and said, I'm going to turn you in. But he ties him up so sloppily that Hagrid was able to escape and run off, you know? It makes sense. Like, in my head, it totally makes sense. It has to be this way. Otherwise, Hagrid wouldn't be able to escape and people wouldn't be able to talk about it. Yes. Yes. I just thought it was so sweet that they've just discovered that Snape has died or they can't find his body, so they assume he's dead. And that's when he starts telling all of these little stories that he remembers that Harry didn't know. And it was just really sweet. I loved it so much. And then you kind of juxtapose that with the memories that Harry suddenly has of this Kingfisher bird who's been following him around his entire career at school, basically, you know, (laughs) like all those years. And this little Kingfisher had been following him around and being with him in his darkest, most lonely moments and providing him with companionship and comfort. And he was around so much that Harry gave him a name. His name is Soul. You know, in Spanish, that means son. I don't know if that's what you were going for. Yes, but uh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So it was just this beautiful thing where Harry's remembering, oh, my God, I think this is the bird that used to hang around with me all that time. And then there were like, there were moments in here that felt profound, almost like this theme comes up twice in your story. But um, at one point, Harry and Hagrid are talking and Hagrid says to him, you know, Harry, this is a wild bird. So eventually he's going to have to go back to the wild when he's all healed up. And he says, you're going to have to let him go. And I know how hard it can be to let go. And to me, that just felt so profound because at the end, you bring that theme back again, Harry having to let go. And it struck me as I read that, like, 
yeah, Harry has to let go of this bird because the bird can't hang around forever. You know, eventually the bird's going to fly away and everything. But it kind of made me think of that old saying, if you love it, let it go. If it's meant for you, it'll come back. But it also made me think of just like all of the things in Harry's life that he had to let go. You know, not just the Kingfisher, but he had just come out of this devastating war. He had lost so many people and there was so much loss and grief. And there were so many things in Harry's life that he had to let go. And I thought, oh, that's so like symbolic of all of the things that Harry is holding on to that he does have to let go because that's life. In life, things are constantly changing and we're constantly losing things. And that's just the way that it is in life. And you do have to let things go. Yeah, you did a profound analysis on that, on things I subconsciously may have thought about, but, you know, never consciously, like, I didn't have it on the forefront of my mind, at least. No, well, and that's why it was so brilliant is because he just, you know, when Hagrid says things, things to Harry, he's just so casual about it. You know, like, you're going to have to learn to let this go. And, you know, <laughs> it's true. It's true for the Kingfisher and it's true for life. I loved what Luna said to Harry, too, you know, when they're talking about the Patronus, because, yeah, you talked about how Harry's Patronus changes at some point in the story. And it becomes this beautiful kingfisher. And he's just kind of like, what the fuck? What's going <laughs> yes. on? Yes. You know? And Luna, of course, Luna would be the one to go to. And she goes, well, of course it makes sense. You saved a life with this kingfisher. And why would that not be your most positive memory at this point when you've lost so many people? And I thought, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that was brilliant. I love Luna. About Luna, I think I love her, like, intuitiveness. Yeah, and I bet that Harry and Luna really connect on that because they both have that intuitiveness. Luna's intuitiveness is definitely different than Harry's, of course, but I think they have that ability to connect on that level. But yeah, I just, I loved that he had these weeks after this devastating war to just kind of, like, heal something. Yes. You know, rebuild yes. something with this Kingfisher and how important that must have been to Harry after all of the destruction and the loss to be able to have that beautiful experience of healing something. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's so, so cool. It sounds like you had a lot of fun writing this one. I did. I did. I, I pushed it out like in September because I, I spent quite a lot of time researching on Kingfishers. Writing this fake yielded one of my most productive writing days. I'm a notoriously slow writer, but that day I wrote two and a half thousand words, which is like amazing for me. I spent the whole day writing and I wrote two and a half thousand words for this fic alone. I was like, oh my God. Wow. Do you have any ideas about why you were able to write so much in so little time for this particular fic? I think it was because I actually sat down and wrote it. Because sometimes you really need that. And wanting to write this. At first, I was really, really panicking because I was like, okay, I need to write this. I really need to write this. And I've been bugging like people on um, the House of Scenario server for uh, with it because, yeah, I dragged some fandom friends into voice chats, like, push me to write, push me to write. And in the end, we chatted and didn't write. But, well, at, at the end of the evening, I did still write 500 words, I think. But afterwards, it got easier. So, because that, that story had time to stew in my mind and, yeah. 
Also, one thing that makes this perhaps sound not so profound, uh, this fic, but just one thing. Who will appreciate the humour of the large beak of the kingfisher and the feathers that by nature have to be slicked well for the bird not to drown while hunting? Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Unexpected, but it makes sense. It does, though. It really, really does. I loved how you included pictures of kingfishers on the second chapter. Because when you click onto the second chapter of that fic, it's really just a collection of uh, beautiful pictures of kingfishers. And I'm so glad that you did that. I love looking at birds, but I don't know the names of any birds or what they're supposed to look like. So that was just really cool to see like, oh, that's what they look like. Oh, my God, they're so pretty. (laughs) They are. They absolutely are. And they are like, at least in Europe, they are like almost ubiquitous. And I didn't know about that. And now when I'm wandering through the local park or something, I'm always on the lookout for birds. And yeah. Yeah, we should all be on the lookout for birds. Because you never know when it's a loved one come calling. Yes. Yeah, it was just, it was such a lovely piece. I enjoyed reading it so much. Thank you. And then I moved on to Christmas in Limbo. Yeah, which is unfinished. It's a work in progress. But this one, I am so loving. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading through the author's notes before I started reading it. And I believe that this is um, based loosely on um, Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, that's so cool. And then I started reading it and I was like, yep, this is absolutely Christmas Carol. This is awesome. I freaking loved it. So tell us real quick what this story is about for Christmas Limbo, and why did you want to write this particular fic? So I wanted to write this because I started off like my fanfiction reading career with some writers, and I wanted to go back to my roots and say hello. And also, I wanted to write this. Um, this Christmas on Limbo adaptation idea is not mine. There are actually two works on Persian Sensitives, also based on Christmas Carol, and I think the first fig I ever read on Persians and Stitches was actually a Christmas Carol adaptation. It's called A Christmas Vow by Alexander, I think. So yeah, and that idea, I don't know, it must have stayed with me because I think half a year later or so, I, that idea popped up in my mind. So yeah, my beta and I were joking that Harry goes to Godric's Hollow in Deathly Hallows, right? And there he's captured or like almost captured by Nagini and he's also bitten by Nagini. So that made me wonder why did Harry not suffer more grievous injuries or what happened there? And my beta and I were like, okay, it's plot armor. It has to be plot armor. And so we were joking, okay, how about transferring the plot armor to Nagini and you know, instead of Harry? And what happens if Harry actually gets captured in Godric's Hollow. What, what happens then? It was a starting point. And since I already did a limbo rewrite scene, for some reason, I like doing limbo rewrite scenes because I don't know why. But yeah. So basically, when he's captured, he finds himself in limbo and then he meets Snape. And well, everything is like going crazy because then Lily turns up too. And yeah, so and this is the part where the Christmas Carol adaptation truly starts. Like Ghost of Christmas Past, Christmas Christmas Present, Ghost of Christmas Future, and so on and so forth. 
Yes, Lily sort of serves as the guide here, at least in these first parts that I read. It was super, super interesting, even though there's only, I think there's three chapters so far yes. on this yes. one, and they're not terribly long, but I loved so many things about these chapters. Thank you. I loved how you describe, you know, Snape's eyes growing empty when Harry suggests that Snape was just waiting for the right time for Harry to die. Harry comes out of the gate here, like, really angry. You know, when he encounters Snape in this limbo space, he's like, oh, my God, I hate you. I'm going to kill you, blah, 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 blah. You know, yes. he's so angry. You know, Snape is just as vitriolic back. But that moment when Harry says, you were just waiting for the right time to kill me, for the right time for me to die. And you describe Snape's eyes just growing so empty. And I was like, oh, that hurts. That's so good. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. You know, because it's just that little detail of, oh, Snape slipped. He showed his real emotions for like five seconds. And then I loved how you describe Harry not noticing how his voice grows cold and rigid and sounds just like Snape's when he's getting angry. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I see what you did there. That was clever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to drop the hints. Yes. Yes, that was a good reveal, one. reveal, which is already tagged, and thus spoiler, but hey. Also, Rui, you know, Snape's eyes go blank. At that point, I wanted to add Snape having an opposite reaction to those. Like, if people are agitated, their breathing speeds up, right? And he doesn't. I think I say something like how his breath fell into an almost cantered rhythm. And... Also, such subtle things that Harry picks up on them. It's like, okay. Yeah, there were so many subtle things in this fic. Even though the chapters aren't too terribly long, there was so much subtlety here that as a reader, it was actually really fun to slow down on the reading and pick them up one by one and be like, ah, I see what you did there. Oh, I see what you did there. Like, that's so cool, you know, because you're really like laying careful groundwork here for later parts. And it was just really, really great. I think my favorite part, though, <laughs> there's this scene. I can't remember what chapter it's in. It might be the first or the second chapter. But, you know, when Lily shows up, they're there by themselves for a couple minutes. And Harry's like threatening to like kill Snape, you know, I hate you, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, Lily shows up, but for some reason, they're both super distrustful of Lily at first when she shows up because she could be lying about who she is, you know? Just because she looks like Lily doesn't mean that she's Lily, and so both of them are kind of on edge, like, oh my god, like, who is this, you know? And I loved that tiny little detail you put in there about Snape very, like, quickly putting himself in front of Harry and throwing his arm out because he has no idea who this woman is and if she is who she says she is. And it reminded me so much of that scene in the movies, you know? Yes. When Lupin has turned into that werewolf. I was thinking of it. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm so glad that we were on the same, like, track <laughs> mind there, because that is the exact scene that I thought of when I read that in your fic. And that scene for me was one of my favorite scenes of the entire series of the Harry Potter movies, because... There are these moments <laughs> where Snape cannot hide his feelings, like his true intentions. <laughs> 
And it's those scenes when there's danger and he actually really does want to protect people and keep them safe. And so he didn't even blink. He just throws himself in front of the werewolf. And then here in your fic, he doesn't even hesitate. He just throws himself in front of Harry like it's nothing, you know? And I just thought, ugh, yep. If you ever had any doubt about how Snape truly feels, it's moments like those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, I I was talking with my beta about just about this. At this point, you know, Harry just like goads him all the time. And Snape was actually more angry about the fact that Harry got himself killed than, you know, about anything else. Exactly. Exactly. Like, oh, my God, all that work I put into keeping you alive. What have you done? (laughs) Idiot boy. Literally. Yes. 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 So that was definitely like a really cool scene. I think that was my favorite so far. But yeah, like, you know, Lily does take them through that first scene. You know, if you're going along with the Carol story, the Christmas Carol story from Dickens, of course, the first guide in Limbo is the ghost of Christmas past. So Lily does take them both to the past. First, they go back to Harry's past for a little while. And Snape gets to observe for the first time how horribly abusive his treatment was um, when he was living with his aunt and uncle and cousin. And then she takes them to Snape's past so that they get to see a little bit about the horribly abusive situation that Snape was into. And it kind of goes back a little bit, Serena, to that thing we were talking about before about Once you get to know these characters, right, once you get to know their backstories, and that's kind of what they're doing here with each other. They're having this really unique opportunity to see the unfiltered past experiences and memories from the other perspective for the first time. And that changes you, I think. That can change you and that can change your perspective on the other person as well. Yeah, exactly, which is what I intended. Also, I really hope chapter four doesn't go down the drain because I'm still stuck on it. I still have no idea what to do. I'm having ideas, but it's like nothing is formed yet. So I hope it doesn't go down the drain. It absolutely won't. It sounds like you have a really great writing community behind you. Yes, I do. I do. So many awesome people. Yes. And all those awesome people, I have no doubt that y'all are going to figure it out and it's going to be brilliant. I just know it. Yes. Like I use as a prompt from the person says it just bingo. Which I shall greet from the community and yeah, I was asked to advertise the PNS bingo because that's what I'm participating in and which inspired my own bingo challenge, which I put up just yesterday because I wanted to get it done in time. Either way, one of the prompts in this event was similarities too obvious to ignore and I wrote it like several times in the comments, but the more I wrote it, the more obvious it became to me, you know, how similar it is. Down to... You can reasonably argue that Tobias Snape was not a thin man, but like a round man because alcohol and stuff down to that point. Yeah, that was so super interesting to me because I don't think I'd ever seen him portrayed quite that way before in fan fiction. So that was very interesting. Yeah. As I said, the more I wrote it, the more it made sense, like the more obvious it became to me. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is so, so cool. I loved it. And so we're definitely looking forward to more scenes there. There's still the Ghost of Christmas present and the Ghost of Christmas future to look forward to. So um, that'll be super, super cool. I can't wait to see what the end is there. And then the reveal, of course, because I believe this is tagged Severitis, right? Yes, it is Severitis. There's the reveal. Um, 
I wanted to talk a little bit about severitis, actually, because we've never addressed severitis on this show before. We've talked a lot about Snary. I love Snary. Okay, can I just say really quick, I had no idea that that's how it was pronounced until like three months ago. Same. Yeah, I've seen that word for so many years and never knew how to correctly pronounce it. So my apologies to the severitis gods for angering you for so long. Same. <laughs> yeah. I, I was corrected like about half a year ago. It was severitis and not, I don't know, some German mangled variants of it. In my head, I was calling it like severitis or something weird like that. Never heard anyone say it before. And then somebody said it to me like three months ago and I was like, oh my God, that's how you say it. Okay. But you sent me this really interesting article from FanLore about the origins of severitis. And that's where I discovered that it's called severitis because the writer severitis is the one that came up with the prompt event back in the 2000s. Yeah, the very original Sephiroth's challenge, so to say. So, first of all, I wanted to say I am in no way, shape or form representative of the Sephiroth's community because I guess like kind of half of the community wouldn't want to read my works because I ship Snary too. But yeah, the Sephiroth's challenge is basically, it's a what if Severus Snape was Harry Potter's biological father challenge. Uh, Severitis readers or fans out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it gave quite a boost to the community. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know much about it myself. I think it's awesome. I just don't read a whole lot of Severitis, so I don't know much about the community either. But I would imagine that it did create this amazing boost for the community, and it became a thing all on its own. Now we use the original prompt writer's fandom name as the name of this trope. Yeah. Almost the whole jar, actually, in Harry Potter, at least. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of Severitis was always that it could either be that Snape is Harry's biological father, or the story could be that Snape is filling that father role in some sense, like maybe he adopts Harry I've seen a lot of Snape adopts Harry stories described as Severitis as well. Yes, the term Severitis and some variations of this term, Severitis, I think, is one and Severitis with I, double I, though I have no idea which term means. But basically, the term Severitis has since widened out into all kinds of platonic Snape mentors Harry stories, like being mostly in a parental function. Or, like, on the Severitis community, there is also a few people where um, Severus is Harry, uh, Harry's big brother. That also exists. There are quite a few stories for that, actually. And there is actually also the reverse Severitis trope, in which, through time travel, Harry somehow is Severus's father. It's mind-blowing! What? <laughs> oh my god, that's so interesting! But, yeah, it's... Like, the community has since widened out to accept, like, almost any type of platonic, more or less friendly interaction between the two. Awesome. Nice. Okay. Nice. So, as I was thinking about the whole Severitis thing, 
And again, you know, I'm coming from a place where I just don't know very much about it. But one of the things that fascinates me to no end about fan fiction and the way that we give these characters different types of relationships is that viewing these characters in different types of relationships can give us different perspectives on who these people are. And so I'm very curious to know, in your opinion, in what ways does Severitis offer us a different view on Harry and Snape as characters? I thought long and hard about this question when I prepared for this. I actually also asked the Potions and Stitches community for help on this, but I think, to me at least, the main distinction I draw between the two ships is in age slash maturity of the characters. Because, let me put it like this, in canon, Harry goes like, lots of detours, he puts himself at risk, and there's just the sense of, there is no one he feels he can go to. I'm, here I'm not actually drawing a line between fan and the canon anymore, but like uh, in Severitas, there is like this adult, this trusted person to lean on. This person was sorely missed in canon. Let me just put it like that. And in Severitas, this person is just like someone who has obviously has reasons to want for Harry's well-being. So this is like this adult-child interaction versus in Snary, they are like more equal, went through the same traumatic experiences or like not so traumatic, maybe. Yeah. So I don't know how to put it well, but these are first thoughts. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Your point that the parental figures in Harry's life were gone at that point. So he never really had any... I'm sure that he wanted that so badly and longed for that. This is a biased opinion, of course, but I mean, honestly, what better person to fill that for him? Because here are just some thoughts off the top of my head as I'm talking right now in this moment. But first of all, Snape is perfect to fill that father role because he's not going to let Harry Potter get away with anything. Yes. He's going to call Harry out on the carpet. And he's going to call him a stupid little boy when he needs to hear that. Yes. Or when he doesn't. I mean, maybe no kid needs to hear that. But I just mean, what I mean, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that uh, parents help bring structure to our lives when we're children and we need that structure. And sometimes we need rules and boundaries and things like that. And a lot of times those things are coming from our parent figures, our guardians, you know. And so Snape can definitely fill that role for him, you know. And then also just the fact that he really is so, what's the word I'm looking for? Snape is so capable of protecting Harry, probably more than anyone, honestly. Yes. And so that's perfect, too, to have somebody in his corner to be in that parent role for him because Harry obviously needs a lot of protection from a lot of bad, shady people. Plus, I really do think that Snape, just because he has so many years on Harry, has a lot of life experience and a lot of like good lessons to teach him that he probably really needs. Yes, totally. Thank you for putting this into words, like this fledgling thought and letting it grow. Because I was thinking about quoting one of my favorite Severitis fics, which is Snape Girl's Arms of a Dark Angel, where um, Severus is a secret guardian angel, like in Harry's childhood. Basically, he Severus takes care of Harry whenever Harry is like sick beyond a certain point. And then, you know, if I may quote, Harry wants to stay, but he can't, obviously, because I think Lily's in this fix set something like, 
take care of Harry, but don't let anyone know, right? And so Snape Girl writes, The sobbing plea, so Harry's plea, tore at the wall Severus had built around his heart, tore and shredded it until it was crumbled to naught but dust. And he looked down at the undersized waif, gripping his ankles, and felt a scorching anger at his mentor followed, Albus Dumbledore, his mentor, followed by a heart-rending anguish for this scrawny, unloved boy, who had somehow ceased being a brat he took care of out of duty, and instead had become something more, something very like a son, if only he could bring himself to admit it. A secret son, a son who was borrowed, but nevertheless, a son. A son that was borrowed? Yeah. I don't know why, but that got me right here. Yeah. Yeah. In the heart. This line made me tear up so hard. Oh, <laughs> I'm so glad you quoted that. That was beautiful. Wow. Sabrina gets into all my feels. Yes. No, that gives me so many interesting thoughts. Like, okay, the Severitis dynamic. Because, you know, here's the other thing about Severus Snape. He is such a lonesome character. Yes. You know? Exactly. Like, you could absolutely describe him as a lone wolf or the nomad who doesn't really belong anywhere. Like, he doesn't really have that sense of community anywhere or that sense of connection with anybody. But, like... I'm not a parent, so take this with a grain of salt. But I imagine that if you're constantly taking care of a child and you feel that intense responsibility to do so, that experience is going to break down your internal walls in a way that few other experiences could. It's going to open your heart in ways that few other experiences could because the experience of being a parent is so unique. Yeah, exactly. So, and I was asked again about the amazing Severitis community to add the trope or the, the keyword found family slash family of choice, which is like most Severitis fics do that because they are like family that is about not necessarily at least by blood, but like by experiences, by shared values, mutual care and support. And that is often because it's non-existent in like their current families. I think these lines show wonderfully how, like, Severitis is, like, Severitis stories are stories about lonely people finding love in each other. Well, Sari is too, but in a very different way. That is what I love so much about Snape and Harry ships in general. Yeah, and I love that point. They seem to both be missing some of the same things, and they are able to find those things in each other. Whether it's Snary, whether it's Severitis, to me, they still sort of feel like two sides of a similar coin. Yes. <laughs> you know, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. But um, it's just kind of coming at it from different perspectives as far as the interactive relationship between the two. But um, so interesting, though. So interesting. I love that, though. I love, love, love that. Wow. Okay. I'm glad we had this conversation. Two sides of a same coin. Actually... This is a trope I've seen used once, literally, uh, in a Severitis fic. It's um, from the Chills series by Henna Hübsch on Potions and Stitches. And it's basically that in the fifth story, fifth and last story, it turns out that Severus has been Harry's biological father all along. And the ritual consists of a potion that, if the test is positive, it gives you a two-sided medal of two metals, like, fused together. So I think this expression isn't too far off. I love that series, by the way. Wow! And I just came up with that off the top of my head. How about that? 
Oh my God. That's so cool though. Because yeah, I'm so used to talking about Severus and Harry from a snaring perspective. Um, so this was really fun actually to think about it in a different perspective to imagine a different type of relationship. Because, you know, I'm always so curious about how changing relationship dynamics changes like everything. You know, I'm constantly asking questions about that because I find it so fascinating. But I was wondering from the two fics that we talked about, either Caraccio or Christmas in Limbo, did you have any favorite lines or scenes from either of those fics that you were the most, most proud of? So off Caraccio, I think that's one thing we haven't mentioned yet or like I ha- I have talked about it but I love the like s- subtle humor in there too like the kingfish is stumbling into a cake tin full of fish I laugh myself silly when I wrote those <laughs> yeah those were very funny you have a lot of humor with the kingfisher in this because obviously it's Snape you know with his like persnickety personality you know and and that personality shines through in the kingfisher and it's so cool yeah especially if he doesn't, like, 100% or, like, he, he's allowed to let himself go and he can be, like, so so cute and so funny. Like, oh. Well, yeah, because, you know, in the animal form, he doesn't have to be Severus Snape. He can just be the kingfisher, right? So, yes, I love what you said there about he can just kind of let himself go a little bit. Yeah, he can concentrate on healing in a way. And of Christmas and Limbo, I think it's the entirety of chapter three. Because that is a lot of firsts for me. Like, it's one of the most complex things I've written so far. Again, a shout out to my amazing beta. Without whom, it would not have been nearly as good. But yeah, as I said, it's one of the most complicated things I've written with, like, layered or intertwined narratives and the details so that everything makes a coherent whole, even though it's, like, split into, you know, different layers. And, like unreliable narration-ish stuff and yeah I'm feeling quite proud of it (laughs) you should though you should because yes it was a very complicated chapter to do but with the help of the community you really pulled it together I feel like it was a very powerful part of the story definitely so good and obviously can't wait for more to come out there because gotta see how it ends (laughs) right you know I wanted to ask you You haven't been writing that long, but you've been writing long enough, you know, that I'm sure that you've learned some interesting or surprising things about writing so far in all of the projects that you've done. So I was just wondering if you wanted to share some of the most surprising or interesting things that you've learned so far about the writing process. On the surprising side, I think I just recently got to know that you should not be editing your work while you are writing it, which I am doing constantly wrong. (laughs) Which is one of the reasons why I'm so slow when I write. Like, I'm horrendously slow. But also, how much self-discovery is in writing is like, it's amazing. Like, yeah. Oh, I love that. That, to me, is one of the best things that a writer can ever say. The self-discovery in the process of writing. How amazing is that? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like writing addresses things that may have been stewing in my subconscious perhaps but haven't made it to the forefront of my mind and I think writing allows me to deal with that in a rather unique manner so yeah have you been surprised by some of the things that you've written in the sense that 
maybe you didn't know that those thoughts or words were stewing in your subconscious and then they came out on the page. Did that ever surprise you? Some of the things that you ended up writing down? Not yet. I mean, I was at times surprised at how my characters or how like things came out. Or like following the flow is like an amazing feeling too. It's like, okay, I wouldn't have thought of that when I first started writing this, but in retrospect, it makes so much sense. That flow. Tell me more about that flow, because I feel like I've heard other writers use that word. What does that feel like to you when you're in the flow? If I may go back to Christmas in Limbo, I said more than once, I think, that the more I wrote, the more obvious it became to me, like how this had to be written and like what the point was, what I'm trying to make and which details fit in best. And that I think is the nicest part about flow. I mean, it tends to be a lot of detail work, but once I'm there, I'm like, to quote a friend, it's like letting the characters take over and just taking a backseat. I know it sounds very disconcerting, but it's not entirely this. It's going along with what seems most logical and, you know, what makes most sense in this context and for what you want to say. I love that so much because... It sort of goes back to that first thing that you were saying about self-discovery, that as you are enmeshed and immersed in these creative projects, you are discovering a lot of things about yourself, right? And your inner world and the subconscious things that are in your mind. And it's this beautiful process of self-discovery. But it also sounds like for you, the creative process is also this exciting discovery of what the creation is as you are creating it, right? Yes, yes, yes. The shape of it starts becoming clearer to you as you go along in the process of writing. And I just think that is so cool. Yeah, totally. The feeling is just like amazing. Like it's almost like having an enlightenment every time, you know, you get this insight into your characters or in what you're writing or the themes you're writing and so on and so forth. That word enlightenment, that's perfect. Yeah, not to, you know, in, in blasphemy, but it has this near religious, at least revering quality to it. No, and that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense because you're connecting with yourself anytime that you engage in a creative endeavor. And a lot of people say that connecting internally, like connecting within to ourselves is for a lot of people a very spiritual experience a lot of artists will say that you know a lot of creators will say that so i think that's perfect that is so awesome you know speaking of creations and things like that before i get to my last question i wanted to ask you real quick or or talk real quick about um you sent me this really cool link to <laughs> this fan work that you've created it's a filk and y'all can laugh at me if you want to But I did not hear the word filk until like a year ago. I did not know that that even existed. I didn't know what that was. And then I think I read an article or something. I think it was a Vice article, actually. And they were talking about filks. I didn't know what that was until a year ago. It's when people create, you know, we have fan fiction. And filk is like fan songs, bringing the musical element into fandom works. So you created a filk. I was hoping you could talk to us about that for just a, uh, a few minutes here, because it was really, really cool. Thanks. I had a lot of fun doing this, because a friend asked around in the server um, for a beta for their fic, and 
I shall use there because it is, as of now, still unrevealed. But yeah, so they were asking about for beta. I was like, okay, I'll do this. And then part of the fic was a poem that was meant to be a song. And I was like, okay, this was meant to be a song. I will write the song for it. And yeah, here we are. I had to unpack all the musical theory I learned like uh, five years ago, longer ago. So I had to unpack all the musical theory and battle with Muse score, like the um score, like writing program, the safe writing program. I battled a lot with it. I asked for a lot of help on the Podfic chat server. And yeah, the whole process was like, this, this was my third time trying to write a song, I think. And also, I have no idea about how to play the harp, so I just took a shot into the blue and just wrote it as I would do it for a piano, which I don't play either, but at least I have learned some rules about how to, you know, write this. So I was trying to apply that. I'm actually still thinking about adding the sheet music to the AO3 work. Oh, that would be so cool. I think people would like that if you did, if you have time. <laughs> uh, I have it already. So it would be a matter of, you know, just editing out a few kinks and just uploading it. Oh my God. That's so cool. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you, like, did you like write the entire melody? Did you actually like record it in some special software program? And it sounds like you did all of that. Not really. I was just standing in the hallway recording it on my phone and editing it with Audacity. Nothing special about that. <laughs> I use Audacity every day. It's very cool. But uh, no, like the way it turned out was just beautiful. You did write that melody. Is that right? Yes. The melody and chords are mine. The lyrics are my, you know, my lyricists. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but it turned out so beautiful. And you have a gorgeous singing voice, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Y'all need to check this filk out because it is gorgeous. And, you know, she has a gorgeous voice. It was just super fun. And then as I, you know, as I finished listening to it, I thought, well, of course, of course, I should have known that filks exist, right? There are so many ways to express love, right? We love all of these different things and fandom and we want to express that love. And so, you know, of course, we write a lot of fan fiction about it. But there are lots of different ways to express love. And music is one of those. And so I just think it's so cool that people use their musical talent to share their thoughts and perspectives and just their joy about the things that they love with the rest of us. It's beautiful. Yeah, I feel like Filk isn't really known, like, unless you stumbled upon one. But fan art is so much more known. I was like, oh my god, why have people not thought about that? There's like, on AO3, I looked, there's about... There's a total of 3,300 works tagged filk on AO3, half of which at least are just, you know, song, lyrics, and or parodies to existing songs. It's a small community. But also, there are fun things about, you know, parodying an existing song and adapting it to the context. Like, this is so funny. Like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine that people could have a lot of fun with the parody satirical side of filking. Mm -hmm. Filking? Is that even how you say it? Is it filking? Oh, that doesn't sound right. Oh my god. Should I cut that out of the podcast? That just sounds wrong. I think it's actually called filking. Is it? Oh my god. Okay. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like filch. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I know. When it came out of my mouth, I was like, that sounds dirty. Um, <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry. Um, 
But yeah, no, I'm just I'm so glad that I know that it exists now because it's just one more way of people expressing themselves and expressing their love and joy. And and it's just really cool. Just throwing this out there. I would love to see somebody write some like folky filk tunes. I like lots of different kinds of music, but I have a special place in my heart for folk music. So if anybody wants to write me some like folk filk, that doesn't sound right either. Oh, my God. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Yeah, that folksy film. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just I'll just throw that out there for anybody who wants to take a shot at that. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our show today. Do you have other fan fiction writers that you'd like to shout out on the podcast before we get out of here? So many. Like, first of all, from the communities to the individuals. For the communities, I'd like to say a lot of thanks to the Fanwork Central server, which has become my home server for, you know, Harry Potter writing or writing in general. Then the Fanfic Writers Guild, also on Discord. There are so many people on there who have so many specializations. I was looking for title help, actually, for one of my fics, and my amazing beta for that fic actually went all middle person for it and like spent hours just working out the details of that one Latin phrase I wanted to use as title for my fic. Then the Potfic chat server for a super quick filk help and the ship-specific servers I'm on, meaning House of Snary. Potions and Snitches, the Snilly server by my friend, which brings us to the individuals, which is Renee, Mothmas, Clary, Nocturne, Chelani, Amelia, Dark Tony, Binta Muhammad, and the last person, I don't know her really well, but I love her fix. It's Lara Onyx, and oh my god, I love her fix. They are my comfort reread and I thank you so much for writing these fics. And thank you to all these people and communities for supporting me by screaming at my ranting and my venting. And, you know, because I can be hard to handle. And I want to thank you all for putting up with me. And yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for those. Community. What a thing, huh? It's the best thing in the world. I love it. I love fandom communities so much for all that we can give to each other and all of the things that we discover about ourselves in the process. So that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Serena EW, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for hosting. Absolutely. Check out her stories on AO3, folks, and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. Rolling.